0: Well good morning, it's like three people in the room this morning, good morning, there we go, hey it's good to be here, Um, my name is Grant, I'm on the team here at Vine and um, it's great to see a bunch of fresh faces this morning, we love having guests with us, we love visitors, Uh, each and every week we have people checking out Vine Church and uh, we're so glad you're here, Uh, Please be our guest. Make yourself at home. Um, We would love that. Hey, you've joined us for week four out of five of our series, Five Forgotten Books, where we have taken five of the shortest books of the Bible... And in five weeks, we are hoping to unpack each and every one of these books in kind of an aim to not forget them. Um, they're so short that sometimes as you're flicking through the Bible, you might just skip over them because the pages are stuck together. And we're at week four today, a little book called Philemon. Viana said last week, uh, we're unforgetting Philemon. That's what we're doing today. We're unforgetting Philemon. And by the end of today, we will have covered. Four books in four weeks. If you're like bang for buck, um, it doesn't get much better than this. If you're the kind of person that like, puts a tick next to the books in the Bible that you've read, four books in four weeks, you're welcome. Um, how good's that? It's like almost 10% of the Bible that you've read. You, you could say if you wanted. Um, 10% of the Bible in five weeks. That's what we're doing in Vine Church. Right, let's jump in. Um, I was going to pray, but Jess did such an amazing job. We'll just jump straight in. Um, So let's do it. Um, We live in a world where we treat people differently depending on who they are. We treat people differently depending on who they are. Now, as I say that, you're kind of like looking at me like, we're not supposed to treat people differently depending on... We're supposed to treat everyone the same, but you do it too. Uh, This morning, I went to my local cafe... And I walked up to the counter, and I said, could I please have one batch brew? And I got my phone and tapped it on a little white square. Somehow they took $5 from me when I did that. I gave it to them. And they, in return, gave me a coffee. That's what happened this morning. But imagine this. Imagine December the 3rd comes around, and I'm at the Christmas festival And the Lord Mayor Clover Moore is there about to cut the ribbon. And I walk up to her with $5 and say, hey, could I please have a batch brew? She'd probably look at me a little bit confused. Probably think I'm a little bit of a weirdo. And highly unlikely she would give me a batch brew in return. And that's not how that relationship works. We do treat people differently depending on who they are. And so we don't ask the Lord Mayor Clover Moore for a coffee. We don't ask our landlord to sit down with us and do our taxes. And you probably don't ask your mother-in-law to check out the weird spot on your lower back in case she thinks it's cancerous or not. Unless, of course, you have like a particularly good relationship with your mother-in-law or she's a doctor or something like that. We do treat people differently depending on who they are. But sometimes that's not normal, that's not right, that's not fair, it's discrimination. Uh, Throughout history and still today, people are treated differently depending on their gender, their skin colour, their sexual orientation, their social economic status, or any other number of reasons. Um, And it's wrong. It's bad. And rightly so, throughout history, there's been a number of movements that have kind of rallied together in order to push against that. We've seen that in the women's suffrage movement who were pushing for women's voting rights. Uh, We've seen that in the civil rights movement, the abolitionist movement, and any other number of movements, where people have been fighting, in effect, to end discrimination and for human equality uh, that every human might be seen equal. Today, it's generally taken for granted that discriminating against someone based on their skin colour, their gender, their sexual orientation is a bad thing. But here's the thing, that wasn't always the case that value hasn't always been held by society so where do we get it from well um let's jump in tom holland um not this guy handsome spider-man um this guy who is a um world-renowned award-winning secular historian uh He has this to say about where the world got its value for equality from. He wrote a book in 2019, 750 pages long, called Dominion. Um, And in it, really what he does is he unpacks the influence of Christianity upon Western society in the 21st century. And in the real pointy end of his book, he kind of almost wraps up with this quote. Here's what he has to say. He says, Humanism derives ultimately from claims made in the Bible. That humans are made in God's image, that his son died equally for everyone, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, repeatedly, like a great earthquake, Christianity has sent reverberations across the world. That human beings have rights, that they are born equal, that they are owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution, let this sink in. These were never self-evident truths. Secular humanism derives not from reason or from science, but from the distinctive course of Christianity's evolution. Now, put simply, what Tom Holland is saying in his book is that um, the idea that all humans are made equal and all humans have equal rights uh, didn't come from science. It didn't come from reason. It's not a self-evident truth that when you just look at in the world, it's there. He says where society got it from, where we in the West in the 21st century got this value that we hold so dear, it came from the influence of Christianity across the centuries as it was slowly infused into society. Now, if you want to dig into that a little bit deeper, read his book, light summer read for you. Um, it's great, but um, it's a it's thick so get into that if you want to know a bit more about what's behind that. I'll just picked one quote out of a 750-page book. But that is the reality, uh, that this value that we hold so dearly is a value that's been given to us as a society by Christianity. And in today's text in Philemon, uh, you can say it if you want, Philemon, 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 um, in Philemon we're seeing this first this, this value that we hold expressed in the first century at a time where it was actually quite countercultural, It wasn't just taken for granted in the society. From what we know, Philemon had a church that met in his home. That's what verse 2 tells us um, in the book. Um, He had a church that met in his home and from elsewhere in the Bible. uh, It's evident that he lived in Colossia. This church was in Colossia. And we believe that Philemon became a Christian under Paul Um, And Paul never traveled to Colossae, so it's likely that what happened is that um, Colossae and Ephesus are near each other, that he went on a trip to to Ephesus, and Paul was there on a missionary journey, and he became a Christian alongside another guy named Epaphras, and they then went back to um, Colossaea and they planted a church there, either one or multiple churches of which one of them was in Philemon's home. And um, what happens in today's letter is we read of uh, this, this letter that Paul sends to Philemon concerning a particular matter of what Paul uh, wants Philemon to do with his slave that has run away from him. This slave that ran away from Paul, that ran away from Philemon to Paul when he was in Rome, became a Christian in Rome under Paul. Uh, if you look at verse 10, it'd be great to have Bibles out or your phone open or something because we we'll be jumping around a lot. Uh, Verse 10, Paul calls Anisimus, this slave of Philemon, his son. He says, he became my son while I was there in chains. He's saying, um, he became a Christian under me in Rome when he was spending time with me away from you. And what happens is Paul um, sends this letter to Philemon, uh, we believe, alongside the letter of Colossians, in the hands of no one else but this runaway slave, Anisimus, and Paul tells Philemon what he should do, how he should relate to this runaway slave, Anisimus. And that's a funny little book of the Bible. Uh, firstly, because a lot of the books in the Bible, a lot of Paul's letters are uh, addressed to churches, to entire groups of people. But here in the book of Philemon, it's kind of like a, just a, a letter to one person concerning a private matter. It's kind of almost like getting someone's phone and reading through their, uh, like their private messages when they're not there. Like as it was read out, it felt a little bit weird. It felt a little bit odd. That's what the book of Philemon is like. And secondly, it's a bit odd because it's quite hard to apply. From what I know, uh, not many or any of us have slaves. And so what do we do with this book? How do we understand this book? How do we read this book? Well, if you look closely um, at verse 1 and 2, the reality is that this letter actually isn't just addressed to Philemon. It's also addressed to um, Aphthia and Archippus and, in fact, to the entire church that meets in Philemon's home. What's going on here? Philemon sends this letter, sends this text to Philemon but then kind of just like creates a a group WhatsApp, adds everyone in the church in and sends it off to Philemon so they can all read about it too. Why does he do that? What's going on there? Well, presumably Paul thinks that the, the entire church that meets in Philemon's home can learn something about the way that Philemon ought to relate to Onesimus. The entire church can learn something about the nature of Christian relationships. In fact, the entire book of Philemon that we just had read out for us is a worked example of Christ-centered relationships. And so if the church in Colossae in could learn something about the nature of Christ-centered relationships from what Paul has to say to Philemon, so can we. And this morning we're going to see three things, three things that come out of christ centered relationships. Firstly, reconciliation. Secondly, equality. And thirdly, and lastly, love. Now, my last point's quite short, so don't freak out when I get there. Like, we're we're much more than two-thirds through, all right? When we get there, you can take a breath. We're almost done. But just before we jump in, unpack those three things, reconciliation, equality, and love, it's important to address what's probably the elephant in the room. And that is that in this letter, the theme of slavery is explicitly mentioned as it is elsewhere in the Bible. And oddly enough, Paul doesn't explicitly condemn it, how we might want him to. So what's going on there? What's happening in this letter? A couple things of note. Um, the first one is, when we think about slavery here, in, which is first century Roman slavery, uh, we ought not make a direct comparison to uh, the slavery that happened in 18th and 19th century in North America. We, if we were to do so, we would be reading back into the text an issue that didn't exist at the time. Uh, a little bit different, the slavery here to the slavery in 19th century North America. Uh, firstly, because the slavery that was going on in 18th, 19th century North America, and for that matter, um, the slavery is still happening in the world today, right, sex trafficking, Um, huge thing, and there's organisations like RGM pushing against it, fighting against it, which is great. Um, But all that being said, um, this isn't the same as 18th, 19th century slavery because uh, that was predominantly a racial issue where people of predominantly African descent were taken away from their home against their will, taken captive, and um, shipped off to be sold as slaves. First century Roman slavery wasn't predominantly a, a racial issue. There was people of every and any race that were slaves, Greeks, Jews, Egyptians, etc. Um, secondly, in Rome, first century, there were certain rules that were um, in existence that were there to kind of protect slaves. So slaves were supposed to be released after a number of years. Um, slaves were... Um, At times, given a small wage, that they might be able to buy back their freedom at some stage. And in a society where there was no real social welfare system, um, often people would actually sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt and in order to survive. And uh, it's very hard to wrap our head around, but at any given time in Rome, we believe that out of the population, 30% of the population were, were slaves. And a further 30% of the population were uh, people that used to be slaves, but were freed. That was what society was like at the time. And so when we read this letter, we ought not to import back onto it modern concepts of slavery that just aren't there. And I cannot make this uh, more any clearer. Uh, in the 18th and 19th century, when people were trading slaves... Uh, And they were using the Bible to justify that, uh, they were wrong. In fact, the Bible clearly and explicitly condemns the practice of slave trading. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, uh, Paul lists a number of activities that are ungodly and sinful, and slave trading is one of them. So, slavery in the New Testament, not the same as slavery in North America or in modern day today. However, it was still bad. Perhaps not as bad as what it was in the 18th and 19th century, but still bad. To be a slave was to be someone else's property. Uh, to be a slave was to have no legal personhood. You probably couldn't vote. Uh, you really, your, your existence as a slave was depending on how good or bad your master was. So you had a good master, you probably had a good life. You had a bad master, you were probably beaten and treated quite poorly. And so what we're going to see in today's letter is that whilst Paul doesn't outright condone slavery, what he does do is he encourages Philemon to relate to Onesimus in such a way that cuts the legs out from the institution of slavery. I'll say that again. What he does do is he encourages Philemon to relate to Onesimus in such a way that cuts the legs out from the institution of slavery. So there is no real other option in this relationship than for the injustices of slavery to wilt and die. And hopefully that'll become quite clear as we walk through this letter. Let's jump in. So today's passage, um, Philemon's slave, Anissimus, runs away from Philemon, uh, likely in doing so, steals a bunch of money from him in order to pay for his trip from Colossea to Rome. And when he gets to Rome becomes a Christian under Paul, and Paul sends him back to Philemon with this letter in his hand, knocks on Philemon's door, and Philemon opens up the door and has staring back at him this runaway slave that's stolen from him and wronged him. What should Philemon do? What should Philemon do? Well, if he was to go just with the grain of what the culture around him was to do, if he was just to treat him normally, uh, he would have beaten Philemon, probably would have broken his legs as punishment, uh, might have imprisoned him, um, in fact, might have even branded him with an iron or put an iron collar around him that could not be removed, stating that he was property of Philemon to be returned. Here's an example um, of one that we have from around the 4th century. Someone slave ran away from him and they put this collar on them that said, I have run away, catch me. Whoop. If you return me to my master, Zoninus, that's a cool name if you're having a kid anytime soon, um, you will receive payment of one solitus. That's the kind of way that you would treat a slave that had run away from you. Beat them, punish them, brand them, break their legs. But what does Paul tell Philemon to do? What Paul tells Philemon to do is something which is radically countercultural. He says, Welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Don't beat him. Don't punish him. Don't brand him or imprison him. Welcome him as if you would welcome the Apostle Paul, the very person who you came to faith under. This is radically counter-cultural. The person that had run away, stolen from him, He's encouraged not to repay him or to get even with him, but to forgive him and to reconcile with him, to welcome him. Do you get how costly this would have been for Philemon? On a number of levels, this would have come at a great price. Firstly, it would have been very costly for Philemon to stare his runaway slave in the face, someone that had wronged him, and to swallow down his pride and welcome him back to forgive him and reconcile him. Secondly, it would have been costly to Philemon because um, it would have come at a great social cost. Imagine Philemon heading to the markets with his slave the next day and people looking at Onesimus and going like, why didn't you beat him? Why didn't you punish him? What are you doing? He would have been mocked and perhaps worse for not treating his slave as he ought to because uh, the other Roman citizens that had slaves would have wanted Philemon to punish Onesimus so that their slaves didn't get the wrong idea that if they ran away, they'd just be welcomed back and received with no consequences whatsoever. Philemon would have been treated differently as a result of welcoming back Onesimus. And lastly, it came at a great financial cost. You see what Paul says um, in verse uh, 17, I believe. Verse 19, sorry. He says... um, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. I will pay it back. What he's saying there in the context of the letter is that if Philemon has taken anything from you, I will cover the cost. I'll pay the invoice. Send me the check. For Philemon to welcome Onesimus would have come at a great financial cost. Now, maybe Philemon did uh, type up an invoice and send it through to Paul, but that could have happened. Maybe he did. But potentially just as likely, he would have felt a little bit guilty sending an invoice to the Apostle Paul in jail, the very person that he became a Christian under, and so would have just paid the cost himself. Either way, whether Paul did end up paying it, or whether Philemon ended up paying it, it came at a great financial cost. Forgiveness and reconciliation always comes at a cost. It always comes at a price. And Paul reminds Philemon of this. He says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. You owe me your very self. You see, what Paul is doing here is reminding Philemon that not only did Ananias become a Christian under Paul, but so did Philemon. That so not only had Ananias wronged Philemon and wronged God, so had Philemon. You see, in some senses, Philemon had a debt, just like Ananias. In fact, the reality is that we all have a debt, just like Ananias. We're all anissimus in this story. Yes, we've all been wronged, but we've all wronged others and we've all wronged God. We've hurt other people and we've turned our back on God through things we've thought, through things we've said, through things we've done or things we haven't done. And like anissimus, we have an enormous debt that needs to be paid. And here's the amazing thing. This morning, if you call yourself a Christian, if you've asked God for forgiveness, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And that forgiveness wasn't cheap, it wasn't free, it came at a price. And the reconciliation that Paul encourages between Philemon and Onesimus is a picture of what Jesus has done for us, paying the price for our sins on the cross, turning aside God's wrath and anger towards us and embracing us as a son instead, bringing reconciliation between us and God as a result. There There is no greater example of forgiveness and then there is no greater cost of forgiveness than the cost that jesus paid in welcoming us back in restoring us in relationship with god and because god has shown us forgiveness we ought to show forgiveness to others because god had shown philemon forgiveness he was to show forgiveness to Onesimus. that there's this dangerous little line in the lord's prayer And it's forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because God has forgiven us, we ought to pursue reconciliation with others. Now here's the thing, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't call yourself a Christian. Did you know this morning forgiveness is on offer for you? But all you need to do is recognize before God that you have wronged others and that you have wronged him. And the beautiful reality is if you do that, come to God and say, sorry, he forgives you. There is reconciliation. Welcomes you back. Can I encourage you this morning, today, forgiveness is on offer. Maybe you are a Christian. Living in light of what God has done for you means pursuing reconciliation with others. Maybe there's someone in your life that has wronged you or maybe there's someone even in this room that has wronged you. And I want to encourage you today as Paul encourages Philemon to pursue forgiveness. See, having Christ at the center of our relationships means that. Maybe this morning you need to forgive someone Or maybe this morning uh, you need to ask someone for forgiveness for what you've done. Or maybe um, you actually need to, there's two people in your life, just like Paul had Philemon and Onesimus, and you need to help them reconcile with each other. As I speak about this, um, I don't really need to illustrate it. I don't really need to give examples because if you have been wronged recently it's probably the only thing in your head right now as you are like searing towards the person that has wronged you but the call for us today is to pursue forgiveness Uh, Corrie ten Boom who was a Dutch Christian uh, she hid Jews in her house during the the war and she was caught doing so. And so as a result, she and her sister and her father were shipped off to a concentration camp. And tragically, she watched as her father and her sister passed away there. Uh, Years later, when she was freed, she was giving a talk on the idea of forgiveness, particularly how God forgives others. And after she'd given this talk, she saw someone approach her, walking up to her. And he didn't recognize her, but she recognized him as one of the meanest, nastiest guards in her concentration camp. And here this man walks up to her, stands before her, and extends his hand and says, I've done some wrong things. But I've recently become a Christian. Corey, will you forgive me? And as Corey Ten Boom reflects back on this event... She says this, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. She's saying, I could not forgive this man for what he'd done. Betsy, her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. You see, when Corrie reflects back on this event, she says she realized that God's love was stronger than her hatred and unforgiveness for this man. And she speaks of the moment that she, in return, extends her hand back to this man and in tears says, I forgive you, brother. An amazing story of reconciliation. And when she speaks about it, she has this to say. She says, you will never touch the ocean of God's love more so than than when you forgive your enemies you will never touch the ocean of God's love more so than when you forgive your enemies that is Christ-centered reconciliation hard to do but beautiful Uh, secondly Christ-centered equality you see, not only does Paul encourage Philemon to pursue reconciliation with Onesimus, he encourages him to treat him as an equal. Check out what Paul says about Onesimus. He says, um, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Calls Onesimus, this runaway slave, his son. Verse 12, he says, I am sending him who is my very heart. Uh, we believe that there is no greater term of endearment used towards another individual in all of Paul's letters than that phrase, "my very own heart," for Philemon. That's the kind of relationship that Paul has with Philemon. And then he says, uh, with Onesimus, sorry. And then he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. What Paul is encouraging Philemon to do here is to not see his relationship with Onesimus as the world would see it. To not treat Onesimus as the world would have him treat him. To not treat him as a slave or someone subordinate to him or someone unequal to him, but to treat him as a brother in Christ. Two humans equal in God's sight. That is what the gospel does. It shatters inequality. It was mentioned in the Tom Holland quote, but um, the Bible says in Galatians, Paul says, "...in light of the gospel there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free." Male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That is what the gospel does. It brings a radical equality. But here's the thing we are experts in manufacturing inequality. Like we are so good at framing our lives and framing situations that we might come off better than other people or we might come off above other people. The way that the world currently does this, the current metric used is like how tolerant or accepting you are of someone. So if you are accepting and tolerant of someone, you are a great human being. But if you're intolerant or unaccepting of someone, then, you know, you are a bigot. And you are like shoved down the hierarchy as someone subhuman uh, or inferior. That's the way that the world does it. But we do it in the church as well. We rank ourselves against other people depending on how mature they are as a Christian, depending on how theologically conservative or liberal they are, depending on how well they dress, depending on how well they know their Bible, depending on their political views, depending on how well-educated they are, or a year or two ago was depending on if they were vaccinated or not. We rank ourselves against other people. It's what we do. Yet the gospel shatters this inequality. Both Philemon and Onesimus both converted under Paul. Yes, their social standing was very different. But in light of the gospel... They were equal. They'd both equally wronged God. And God had equally forgiven both of them. Wiped out their sins. And the reality of this morning is that that is the case for us too. If your trust is in God, yes, you have been reconciled to God. Praise God. But so has the person next to you or in this room. And they are your equal. And not only that as a result of what the gospel has done this is your family like look around at the people around you actually do it like look around this room this is your family this is your brothers and sisters mother or father auntie or uncle this is family whether you like it or not you're stuck with each other forever. That's what the gospel does. It brings equality. And the danger for us this morning is that we might not treat each other, we might not see each other through that same lens, but that we might see each other through the lens of how the world would treat people. Whether male or female, slave or master... Rich or homeless, educated or not, well-dressed or not, we are all one in Christ. And so this morning, might we treat each other that way, as family. Lastly, and finally, and quickly, as I promised, Christ-centered love. You see the tone that Paul takes in this letter? It doesn't compel Philemon. It doesn't command him, treat Onesimus this way, I command you. Now he appeals to him again and again. In verse 8, he says, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Again, in verse 14, he says, I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. You see, the motivation for our love for each other ought not come from a command that Paul gives us or a preacher or pastor or someone twisting your arm to do it. It ought to come from when you reflect on and you grasp and consider the very reality that you have been bought at a price and that God loves you and cherishes you as his dear son or daughter. And when you grasp that reality... We don't need to be commanded or compelled or forced to love others. In fact, we ought to have love bubble up from within us to those around us. When we realize, I was saved by God. I didn't deserve that. You reconciled me to himself. Live in light of that love. Love those in your life. Treat each other as family. Respond and live out of grace. What would it look like if we were a church that embraced and held on to Christ-centered reconciliation, equality, and love? What would that look like? Can you imagine that church with me for a moment? What would that church look like? What would the result of that be? Well, this this is corny, so forgive me. But but it's true. If we were that kind of church, it would quite literally change the world. Tom Holland himself says, repeatedly, like a great earthquake, Christianity has sent reverberations across the world. Christians from the first century read this letter and embraced these themes, and it Echoed throughout the world, like an earthquake. Can you imagine if we were a church, what it would be like to be part of a church? where we embrace one another in love and forgiveness, even when it hurt, when we treat each other as family, regardless of the incredible differences between us? Where people could come here of all sorts of different backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, and we would treat each other the same. That would be a radically countercultural place to be. And can you imagine as people walked in from Surrey Hills in the community and saw that, their lives would be changed by the gospel, so that we would see thousands of people connected to the life, love, and freedom that Jesus offers. And if we lived that way, and other churches in Australia continued to live that way, as many of us are doing, people would look back in 20 centuries' time and see the world around them and say, wow. We hold these values. This world looks different because of the influence of Christians upon it. Might we embrace these realities from this letter to Philemon this morning, even as we head out into morning tea and the rest of our days. And as we do that, we need help because it's hard. Let me pray.